0: Good morning. Uh, so good to see you here today. Listen, I'm so excited about this morning. We have Keith Haney with us. Keith Haney, yeah, give it up for Keith Haney. All right. <laughs> Keith Haney is with us, uh, along with his daughter Sharon, who has come to fight off the groupies who are apparently here, um, you know, in in, in in our midst. But uh, you know, I want to tell you a little bit about Keith. Keith is a pastor um, over 25 years who's currently working with the NID. That's the Northern Illinois district of, of our little corner of, of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And, um, you know, in what's historically a white German church body, Keith is one of the few African-American pastors in this church body, doing incredible work across racial lines. To um, um, this together to be what it means that that multicultural, multi, multi-racial children of Abraham. Let me frame this for you. Right now in the LCMS, there are over 6,000 ordained pastors. Right now in the LCMS, there are 60 African-American pastors. Um, Keith told me about 30 of them are retired. Um, so he's a pioneer. And uh, he's, uh, he, he's one um, who, who, who I asked to come here today to speak specifically to, to racial issues um, Maybe very specifically, to the racial blinders that I think a lot of us tend to have and put on that make us unaware of, of, of this, this multicultural, multiracial family that God is trying to build. So, with that being said, I am getting out of the way. Would you give it up, Keith Haney?
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be here. First of all, that band really charged me up this morning. It's, it's funny, um, a little bit about my story, I grew up in the Deep South, I grew up starting out as a Southern Baptist, and I became Lutheran because in the Southern Baptist Church, there is a lot of emotion, um, and typically, three or four times during the service, someone will, will be moved by the Spirit, they'll jump, and they'll uh, wail their arms, and they'll be taken out by the ushers, and I'm four years old watching all of this. And I told my mom, I was like, Mom, I can't take this. It's too stressful. (laughs) Because you're just sitting in the pew waiting for that person to kind of go off, and you're not sure who it's going to be. So she listened to me, put me into a Lutheran uh, preschool. And you know anything about Lutherans? The first opening day is what? Chapel. So I'm now imagining little kids who are going to be passing out during chapel. (laughs) But we're Lutheran, so there was no emotion at all. <laughs> and I told my mom, that's the church body I want to join. <laughs> so all that being said, that's how I ended up in this church body. I, I converted my entire family, and they became Lutheran because there was no emotion. Um, <laughs> but, but, but your praise band just took all that away, so... Um, But a little bit more about my story, kind of, um, as I was watching in the news all of the racial tensions that were happening in our country, um, in the last year it's kind of tapered down some, but you remember Baltimore, you remember St. Louis, you remember Baton Rouge, you remember all the racial tension, you remember the the fighting and the riots and the houses being burned. In the midst of all that, I started writing a blog um, about how do we deal with the race in our country. And it was very troubling to me that the only voices I heard in the world and society and on television were negative. And they were just feeding more and more into the racial tension. I'm going, there's got to be a positive voice somewhere. So I decided to write about a positive way to deal with racism. And out of that, um, CPH asked me to write a Bible study. It had actually passed doctoral review. so, um, so it got published. And out of that, I kind of want to share with you kind of one of the things I did. I wrote a letter in one of my blogs, an open letter to the church. Because I think what's missing in the conversation about racism is the church was silent. I kept waiting for the church to be on TV saying something about it. And the church was completely silent. So I wrote an open letter to the church, and here's what it was. Dear Christian Church, As I look at the racial pain all around and the way it's portrayed in the national media, it saddens me. The tone is negative, and it's feeding into the darkness that's already out there in our sinful world. I don't expect the world to have real solutions. Dr. King said this, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Dear church, especially the black church, because they've led so many times in the past, but doesn't excuse the white church, by the way. Um, just as you answered the call to the civil rights movement, you've a pivotal role to play. You have the light. You know the only real love. The world is lost without your voice, without your direction. It's time to stand and to lead. Now is the time for the church to speak out. Sincerely, those in the world looking for answers. There weren't any answers out there. There was no voice out there. There was no guidance out there. And I, and I really thought the church was devoid of racism until I was on a call list about a year ago. And I went to visit this church. It was a mostly white congregation. It was a small population of African Americans there, and they were grilling me. They had me come and preach, and they wanted to ask me a bunch of questions before the call went out to make sure I fit into their DNA. And during his Q&A, one of, the, one of the members of the church, actually the pastor's father, said, you know, we've been meeting and talking about the possibility of calling you, and i got to be honest with you, which is never a good start to a conversation. <laughs> but he said, to be honest with you, we, our men's Bible study been talking, and we're not sure we're ready for a Negro pastor. To which the whites in the audience, which is most of the population, went, no, shut up, we're trying to call him." But I, I, I noticed in that moment, and what was the most troubling about that, that moment was, I took on that visit with me two of my kids. I took my 17-year-old boy and my 12-year-old daughter. My 12-year-old daughter looked in her eyes, and I saw for the first time the pain that racism calls. She wasn't necessarily hurt for herself, but she was feeling the hurt for me. A year later, she still references that. We tried to process how that felt for her, how that must have felt for me. And she goes, Dad, I don't know how you do it. I don't know why you stay in this church body. And I said, because somebody's got to be a voice. Somebody's got to point the church toward future of healing and reconciliation. And until God tells me I'm not supposed to, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to shut up until someone shuts me up. And what I've discovered is that the church has been actually pretty open to hearing the message. Because I do it in a positive way, and I don't really attack people because that's not really helpful either. But in my Bible study, one of the verses that really stuck out to me was from Ecclesiastes 3. And it says there's a time for everything, a time to tear apart a time to sew together, a time to be quiet, and a time to speak. It's time for the church to speak. It's time for the church to lead. It's time for the church to deal with the internal racism in our church body. Because if we don't deal with it as a people of God, it's never going to get dealt with. As Pastor gave you some of those troubling stats, there are only 30 African-American active pastors in our church body and the sad thing about that is, the one with the seminary, their goal was to turn me into a German Lutheran pastor. <laughs> and then stick me in Detroit. <laughs> I'm like, if you're gonna do that, at least stick me in Schomburg. They, they stuck me in Detroit, the middle of a black neighborhood, and I looked like a foreigner. Because my people didn't understand their community. My people couldn't relate to the people outside the walls. Our worship didn't connect with my people outside the walls. They, they walked into our church and they went, what in the world just happened? And, and the way they taught me to preach, it was like, this isn't going to work in the city of Detroit they aren 't going to get this, and so we we have created dying african American churches because African American pastors cannot relate to their community they have they educated the black out of them, so to speak and, and we have no idea how to connect with the people that we have to reach, but we have to realize that in order to be a church that appreciates ethnic diversity, we have to honor traditions. We have to honor the people that we're called to serve. We have to recognize their culture and their values and their music. We can't do what the Borg do if you love Star Trek. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. That's not the way the church works. The church is designed to be a multi-ethnic melting pot where we celebrate diversity. My church, we had a, a, a practice that um, our service was going to offend everyone, no matter what. Because we were going to have something that was designed for my German, my German members. We had something for my African-American members. And I said, we're a family. Like every family, you're going to hate the meal once in a while. But if you love your brother and sister, you'll, you'll take the meal and you'll rejoice because it's the favorite meal of your, your family member. So here are two things a church can do to deal with racism in our church body and division. We have to first identify the real enemy in the racial divide. As I looked at the world around me, I asked the question, who was stirring up all the hostility? Who was behind all the divisive talk? Who are we actually fighting when that member asked that question in the church, I think he was waiting for a response from me, maybe an angry response of, how dare you say that? But I looked at him and I realized that I'm not his enemy. He wasn't afraid of my black skin. He was just afraid of change. But the real enemy sometimes has us distracted from our conversations. So who is that real enemy? It's a familiar foe. He wanders around like a roaring lion. He speaks about darkness. He gives us half-truths. We recognize him. In fact, one of my favorite passages about this person is found in Job chapter 1. I didn't put it on your screen. You have to just believe me on this one. (laughs) But in Job 1, there is a conversation in Job 1 between the eternal one and the accuser. And the accuser says, you know, you have this servant, Job, who is very faithful to you. He's probably the only faithful ones you have left. He says, you know why he's faithful, right? Because you put a hedge around him. He says, give me permission to take away everything that is important to him. And I guarantee you, holy one, he will curse you and die. And God said... You can have my servant Job, but you can't do him any harm. And so Satan goes about spending the next few chapters in Job, taking away everything from Job that mattered. Took away his crops. Took away his family. Took away everything from Job except his wife and him. Then he gave him disease on top of it. So as Job's at one of his lowest points, he's sitting there, body covered in boils, and he's scratching, I love this, a friend, quote unquote, comes by and asks Job, we're like, you know, look what God has done to you. you. How can you worship this God? And so at that point, Job demands an audience with God. Give me a, give me a courtroom, God. I want to put you on trial. I love that. It was hilarious. So he decides to put God on trial. So God shows up. Now, in the Hebrew, you have to be careful because what God says to Job is, he says, okay, pull up your robe and tuck your robe into your, into your, into your waist. In other words, get ready because here it comes. So you can imagine like a wild, wild west where the guy with the gunslinger kind of puts the coat back and it's like this. So God tells Job, stand like that and get ready because I'm going to give you what you asked for. And then he asks Job some questions. Do you have any idea... How the world was formed, how everything was put in place, and why I do what I do. I want you to understand that nothing in this world happens that I'm not in control of. And all of this beyond your understanding. But what Satan tends to do, and you'll see the same Satan appear in Genesis, is Satan appeared to Eve and offered her this wonderful deal. Don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to know as much as God does? And he says, just, just eat this fruit that God says forbidden. You won't die, at least not right away. And if you eat it, you'll be just as, you'll know, just as knowledgeable as God is. So she takes it, and she eats it, and she discovers that the serpent was only telling her half-truths. If, the, if Satan completely lied to us, we could just dismiss him. He gives us enough truth so that we buy into whatever he's trying to sell us. So in the racial issue, you will hear things that African-American people may be dangerous. Because you look at television, they're the ones committing all the crimes. Well, the ones that are television. And so you start to hear and believe the words you hear and the things you see Even the terms, I had an entire blog just on the titles that we give ourselves. Black means dark, evil, suspicious, hostile. White means pure and holy and without sin. I'm like, wow, that's a nice little dichotomy there. (laughs) But Satan gives us These half truths because what the accuser does is the accuser slanders. The accuser is a false accuser. The accuser gives us just enough truth so that we buy into the narrative that the world around us is telling us. And so we can dismiss an entire group of people because they sort of fit the narrative that Satan says. You want to really hit home, talk about immigration right now. Do you believe everything that the media says about the immigrants coming into the country? No matter what side of the coin you're on, he gives you just enough truth so you buy into it, so that Satan sucks you into his world, sucks you into his reality, and he gives you this false narrative because if you look at what the accuser does, he never gives you enough of the story so you make an informed decision. Racism devalues people. It dehumanizes people. It reduces them to terms and conditions and categories. God adds value. This is my favorite passage because in this, Paul addresses every single social ill. You are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. And here are the divisions, the tensions. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, and those two were constantly at war in the church. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Yeah, they had issues with gender back then as well. For we are all one in Christ. Paul makes the point that our unity, our, what unites us is that we have been baptized with Christ and we have clothed ourselves with Christ and our new identity is found in this baptism And that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ by that one act of selfless sacrifice that Christ made for us. He says, you are one in Christ. In that baptism, you're one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You are one people. You are a new people. A new identity has been formed. You have been adopted again. And your entire past, your background has been wiped clean. You are now new and fresh. And you are clothed in the clothes of Christ. So now if you belong to the church of Christ, then indeed you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So we are all descendants of Abraham. We are all connected with Christ through that baptism. And what the church has to communicate to the world when they say no, black or white, no, we are all one because we've all been created by the same creator. And to be honest, we all stand before that same creator with the same issues, we're all falling short of that creator's expectations. But we've all been redeemed by that same creator through his son, Jesus Christ. And we've been made into a new nation with a new identity, with a new past, a new beginning, and a new inheritance. Because we're all children of the promise. One last thing. If we want to really change the narrative in our church, we've got to commit to reconciliation. I was trying to finish figure out how am I going to end this Bible study. And I'm going, I was going to call for a national day of reconciliation. I'm going, that's never going to happen. (laughs) Because who's going to pass that law? Um, But it, it hit me that it has to be every single Christian individually, in their connections, in their relationships, modeling what it means to be Christ in the world. Only you can bring about reconciliation. It doesn't, it's, not, it's not a corporate thing. It's not a church thing. It's not something FOF can do. But FOF's members can do this. Because you send out every week into the community, what, three, 400 missionaries to the different ends of the world to be the voice of reconciliation and healing, to demonstrate and model God's love to those who are disenfranchised, to those who are outside, who are not like yourself, but are one with you because they are redeemed in Christ. But we can't do this overnight, it won't happen quickly because we didn't get here overnight. It will take a long, difficult process where both sides have to admit wrong and ask for reconciliation and peace, where we've done that. It's gonna take small steps forward and there'll be setbacks There'll be heartache. There'll be hurt feelings. But the question is is it worth saving? Is it worth making the world different? When I did did this Bible study, I did did a test run in different churches, mostly white. And I had one, one white member say to me, Pastor, what you're asking for is impossible. This will never change. And I said to him, in all due respect, now I know how small your God is. My God's bigger than that. If my God can solve the sin problem of the world, I think he can solve the racism problem of the world. My God's much bigger than that. So how do we do that? We have to realize that the church needs to lead the way With the only thing that we have, love. And it's Christ like love that will guide and direct and change hearts, one heart at a time, one relationship at a time, one connection at a time. And if the people of God in this church body, for example, which is one point some million strong, were to send out and say, We're gonna make a difference, one million of us in the world. Imagine the impact of one million people going about the idea of reconciliation and modeling the love of Christ in the world. Because I think God wants that. God asks for that. God expects that from those he has redeemed and given the task. And the ministry, if you remember what Paul said, the ministry of reconciliation. So it's not just us and God, but also us and our fellow man. So I leave you with a challenge, FOF. Are you willing to be the church that leads in reconciliation? Because you have a God who has the power to do that through you, with you, in you, to be those people of God who model what it means to be church, and inclusive, and loving, and caring because that's what Jesus was, and that's what Jesus is, and that's what Jesus asked his followers to be. May God bless you this day and every day as you carry on being the people of God in this place and in this community and in this world. May you be salt and light in a world that desperately needs salt and light.